Dom had entitled the, the series that he was preaching through 2 Corinthians, Resurrection People. Right? This idea that everything that we now are is marked by this fact that we are united to Jesus. And Jesus is, is living in resurrection power and he lives in us. We heard last week that we are a people who both die and live now with Jesus together. And so if, if Dom had, had focused on what it means, that kind of foundation, that identity that we have as resurrection people. I'm going to continue on through the rest of the letter um, from now until the end of the summer. And we're, we're going to kind of move quickly. We'll be covering um, big sections some, some weeks at a time. But I want us to think about if we're resurrection people, well, what are the resurrection practices that help us live into that identity? What do resurrection people do? Today, we're, we're going to hear about specifically what they do in their relationships with each other. We're going to pick up um, partway into 2 Corinthians 7 today. So if you can turn there in your Bibles together with me. 2 Corinthians 7 points to a resurrection practice that I think all of us could use help with. It's not an easy practice. And it, it specifically pertains to our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Particularly when there is the possibility of division creeping in. When there's the possibility of bitterness soaking into our hearts. And threatening to to split us apart, even though Christ has joined us together. And in, in times of conflict or difficulty, one of the primary tools that I tend to go to, that I'm sort of hardwired to go to, is the idea of just being nice in relationships, right? Simple kindness, graciousness. And there's a lot to be said for being nice. But Paul tells us that there are limits to being nice this week. There are times when being nice simply isn't enough. That there's more to the resurrection practice of being God's people than just being nice. I would attribute some of my proclivity to, to see niceness as the, the one and only solution to conflict at least in part to the fact that I grew up in the Midwest. And if any of you have traveled through the Midwest, right, it's a, it's a culture that prides itself on niceness, right? It's on t-shirts, right? We wave at everybody. We apologize to everybody, even when we didn't do anything wrong, right? We want everyone to be happy all the time, right? And so niceness is our way of, of trying to make that a reality. To give you a, a little bit of an understanding, if you didn't grow up in the Midwest or haven't spent much time there, I, I found this clip on YouTube uh, that, that explains in about 60 seconds what it means to be Midwest nice. Sam's got that queued up here. Oh, Tom, how are you? Yeah, no, I just had a couple hours between taking Bill to the airport and helping Frank move, so I figured, you know, I was already cutting my lawn, why not just cut your lawn too? Hey there. Hello. Howdy. Hey, Jane. How are we doing today, Jim? Excuse me, miss. What, yeah, sorry. Would you mind if it's not too big of an ask? Could you just um, 
you're stepping on my foot. Kind of hurts a little. Thank you. Thank you. And sorry again to ask. If I was wearing shoes, it'd be no big deal, but I'm, you know, I'm wearing sandals, so. Ah, the old four-way stop. Yeah. Go on. Come on now. Go on. Go on. Come on. Oh, what do we got here? Oh, we got a guy coming. Hang on. Put her in reverse. There you go. Hey, Mary. Good news, I got some extra banana peppers. You can come pick them if you want, or I'll just can them and bring them over. So, niceness, I think, is probably among the resurrection practices that, that should shape us. Right? Kindness is a fruit of the spirit. And, and under certain circumstances, right, this kind of practice of niceness can go a long way. It can be a, an expression that people matter to you that their feelings matter to you. It can be uh, an expression of your hospitality to someone. But if you want to think about uh, relationships, whether that's individuals that you're in relationship with or a, a group of people you're connected to, and you stretch that relationship out on a timeline, probably the practice of niceness has its greatest value at the beginning of a relationship. Right? It, it says that you're approachable. It says that you value that person, that you want to know them, that, that you're open to, to seeing this relationship grow. But I think there's a sense that as a relationship goes on over time, right, niceness can only get you so far. Because eventually, if we actually know people and spend time with people, stuff happens in those relationships. Right? You run into disagreements. You discover your differences. You see that you don't see the world the same way. You sin against that person. That person sins against you. And at that point, being nice runs into, I think, a kind of limitation. Now, some of us, if, if niceness is the only resurrection practice we know, we, we see all of these things kind of under the surface in a relationship that emerge over time. We understand that they're not quite the way they should be. But sometimes we just double down on the practice of niceness. Right? If, if we just sort of ignore those things and, and treat that person kindly, if we pretend everything's OK, then, then maybe it will eventually be OK. Unfortunately, that's not usually how it turns out. Usually, the, the problems that surface in a relationship, the conflicts and the tensions that are there, continue unless we have other tools, other practices that we know how to go to, to live into that identity we have as resurrection people. And if we, if we don't develop those practices, then we're kind of stuck all the time in relationships that, that seem to be OK on the surface, that seem to be nice and happy. But underneath, right, we're experiencing this bitterness or resentment or division with one another. So I want to look at how this is sort of played out in the letter of 2 Corinthians, in Paul's own relationship with the church in Corinth. And so by the time we get to the letter we're reading today, 2 Corinthians, Paul has probably been in relationship with these people for about five or six years. We don't know exactly, but somewhere roughly in that time frame. He's known them for a half a decade or more. And there's a lot that has transpired in that relationship in those five or six years. Now, to be fair, when Paul originally arrived in Corinth, right, it was part of this big missionary journey. 
He comes into the city. He knows no one. And if you read Acts 18, you see it's, it's really through an act of niceness. It's through an act of hospitality that Paul makes a home there. Right? He connects with Aquila and Priscilla. They begin a, a tent-making ministry together. They build relationships in the city, and they plant the church in Corinth. And they, they do that together for a year and a half. Paul stays put in that one place. And there's, there's difficulties. They, they have some challenges that emerge with uh, the local politics of the city. But in many ways, there's, there's a sweetness about that time in the life of, of Paul and his relationship with the Corinthians. So there, there's this, this positive start, this niceness at the beginning. But then Paul moves on to Ephesus. He feels like it's time for him to, to move on in his mission and ministry. He sails across the Aegean. And as time goes by, he begins to hear things about what's happening back in Corinth. He hears that there are factions emerging. He hears that the, the rich people in that community are holding their, their power and their privilege over the poorer people in that community. That there's all kinds of boasting going on about who has real wisdom, who speaks well, who should be leading the church. There are concrete sins where members of the congregation are living outside of, of what the scriptures teach in terms of relationships, in terms of belief, all, all kinds of things sort of the fuse is lit, and, and there are problems about to explode in that church. And so Paul, in his love for them, decides to write them a letter. And it's the letter that we now have in our Bibles as 1 Corinthians. Paul, Paul writes, and he, he names a number of these things that are concerning to him, things he's been hearing. And he offers them what he says is, is the way of Jesus, the way of the gospel teaches them and, and corrects them. And so Paul sends that letter off, and then he decides that it would be best for him to follow up that letter with a personal visit. And so he comes to Corinth, and, and he seeks to, to sort of enforce or, or to put forward all the things that he said in his letter. But unfortunately, that visit is not a nice one. In fact, it was probably one of the most painful things Paul ever experienced in his many years of ministry. When he got to Corinth, there were leaders who were actively speaking against Paul. The church chose to ignore the concerns he had raised. They denied his authority as their, their founding father, their, their apostle. They criticized him to his face. And so they sent Paul on his way, heartbroken, embarrassed, pained. Paul doesn't tell us all the details about what transpired in those weeks. But he does say back in first, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, at the beginning of this letter, that that time was deeply distressing and painful to him. Things weren't okay anymore. And Paul was deeply hurt. And I imagine that in the course of your Christian life, you have experienced this with a family member, with a member of the church, with a phone call, with a meeting, with a visit, with an email, something. A time where you felt completely misrepresented, misunderstood, 
time when you felt a, a friendship you had with someone was in tatters. What do we do in that time? What practice do we have to lean into as resurrection people? Well, the timeline here with Paul and the Corinthians is that Paul left Corinth and he gave it some space and some time. There were probably a good six months or more that that went past. And Paul prayed on what to do, how to think about this relationship. But I think Paul couldn't shake how deeply hurt he was and how, how deep he carried this relationship in his own spirit. And I think more than just his own personal hurt, he understood that if, if the church in Corinth was to continue its identity as a resurrection people, they couldn't live like this. They couldn't treat other people like this. Right? They, too, needed to know that this was not okay. And so I think it was at that point that Paul realized he needed to stop being so nice. No more Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> Things were desperate. And so we know from 2 Corinthians, several things Paul says in that letter, that he wrote another letter, a letter that we don't have anymore. It's been lost to us. It's not part of the scriptures. But Paul calls it a letter of pain. He calls it, the German theological tradition calls it his letter of tears. This was Paul pouring himself out and naming how raw and wounded he felt by the attack he had received at Corinth. He was honest. He was, he was vulnerable. And he also set a, a kind of boundary in his relationship with the church there. We know not exactly what he said in that letter, but we know that he described, described to them a number of things that needed to be addressed their own relationship with him, perhaps particular sins or grievances within the community itself. And Paul said, I'm not going to come back again. I'm not going to visit again. It would be too painful, too destructive to us both, unless there's a willingness to repent and to reconcile. And he sent that letter off, and I think Paul fully believed that would be the end of his friendship in Corinth. I don't think he thought he would be back there again in his lifetime. But he sent that letter with his trusted friend and compatriot, Titus. He didn't just put the letter into the post. You couldn't do that back in those days. You sent it with someone. And when that letter arrived, that person was your own ambassador, your emissary, and they would explain the nuance and context of what was in the letter. And so, Paul sends Titus, probably from Ephesus or somewhere in that region, off to Corinth with this letter of pain and tears. And Paul himself began to travel north, north and west up to Macedonia, where, where the Philippian church was and other communities there. And he, he continued his ministry, but we know that Paul prayed and he waited anxiously for an answer from Corinth. He waited with expectation to hear how things went over with Titus. This morning, we're going to look at a handful of verses here in 2 Corinthians 7. 
we're going to see how God answered those prayers. Let me pray for us as we hear the word of God. Lord God, you are a God of mercy and compassion and kindness. But you are also a God who speaks honestly and forcefully to us about our own sin, who confronts us, who convicts us with the power of your spirit. So that we would not be a people marked by death, but we would be people who come through death into new life. Lord, I pray that the power of these words, living words of God, would move us now. May the words of my mouth May the meditations of our hearts as your people, may all of these be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in the middle of 2 Corinthians 7. We finished last week with verse 4, I think it was, that said, right? So now we are a people who live and die together. I'm sorry, we would die and live together in, in our union with Jesus Christ. And so now he's... He's speaking to the Corinthians, and he's looking back retrospectively in this letter to that that time of great distress. Verse 5. Paul says, "For, for we went on, we came into Macedonia, continued our mission there. But at that time, we had no rest, for we were harassed at every turn. There were conflicts on the outside. There were fears at work within us. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but by the comfort you had given him. For he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me. So that the result was my joy was greater It's easy to move through this letter and not see all that these three verses contain. But I would contend there is a resurrection miracle described here by Paul. So I want you to to picture what Paul is describing. Picture those months, maybe that better part of a year of his life. Paul is moving through kind of the area north of Greece, up in Macedonia... He's visiting his church friends in Philippi. And I think this is probably the period in Paul's life where he is closest to burnout. He is fried. I think if you met Paul during that time of his life, he would look exhausted, depressed, discouraged. He says it was a time in his life where he was fighting battles everywhere. We don't know, there's no historical record, but many scholars speculate that Paul experienced a brutal imprisonment in Ephesus just before this. There's, there's kind of a, a blank spot in Paul's history. There was a, a major riot there. Paul may have been experiencing torture or, or isolation in the months before this. What we do know is that as he goes around and visits these numerous communities, he's also constantly facing opposition. Opposition from from Jewish zealots, people denouncing Paul, 
inside and outside of the church. He's also carrying around with him the burden that he knows his brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem are literally starving to death. There is a famine. And so he is trying to gather resources to take back and help them, help feed his friends. And on top of all that, he carries with him this incredible relational brokenness. That some of his dearest friends, one of, one of his beloved churches back in Corinth has rejected him, has offended him, has deserted him. And so as verse 5 puts it, this time was marked by conflicts on the outside, fear on the inside. At the start of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, it was a time where he despaired of life itself. He didn't want to get up in the morning. But Paul says the only thing that brought him through that time is that it caused him to believe in a God who brings the dead to life. It's the only thing that gave Paul hope. Paul believes in, Paul preaches, Paul lives out of this gospel that says no matter how struck down, no matter how broken you feel, no matter how dead things appear to be. We worship a God who goes through death and brings life. Can I get an amen? Let's try that again. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. He's a God who brings comfort in affliction, Paul says. Look at verses 6 and 7. He's so broken down. He's so afflicted. He's so overwhelmed. And then one afternoon, after months and months of praying and waiting and being full of anxiety about that letter he sent with Titus, Titus finally tracks Paul down. Probably at, at a worship gathering in Philippi or, or somewhere up in that region. And I think as Paul embraced his brother, he must have seen this huge smile begin to spread across Titus' face. And he begins to understand that something happened in Corinth. He begins to understand that resurrection happened in Corinth. Because Paul, in his vulnerability, expressed his great pain. And that pain pained them as well. We're told here in verses 6 and 7 that the Corinthians acknowledged before Titus all the pain their actions had caused. And it wounded them. Wounded them to the point that they moved toward repentance. And it set within them this incredible desire to make things right. They even want Paul to come back and see them. They're pleading with him to make a return visit. And I can imagine in, in the moments that Paul begins to hear the, that news from Titus, it must have been like a thousand pound weight sliding off his shoulders. So much so that he says by the end of verse 7 that in that moment, on that day, the joy he felt was greater than ever. He says that the love, the, the, the joy that he feels towards these colleagues in Corinth is greater now, even after all the pain they caused him, 
greater now than it was six years ago when they were first starting out and, and things were in that honeymoon stage. Because their friendship had experienced death and now new life. When we choose to lean into the resurrection practice of acknowledging hurt, acknowledging pain, but believing there is something possible beyond that. Even the most broken relationships can be transformed. But it requires the practice of humility requires practice of transparency, requires the work of repentance. And Paul outlines that in verses 8 through 11. Look at these verses with me. Paul says, even if I caused you sorrow by sending that letter, I do not regret it. I did regret it. But I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, to transformation. That's what that word intends. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed by us in any way. Paul explains, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to our salvation, and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings, it results only in death. See, literally behold, what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see that justice is done. And so at every point now, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. I'm still growing, I think, in my own person, in my own relationships, to lean into the practice Paul describes here. But this is what I think he's saying. I think there are times when our relationships, what our relationships need most is to feel the pain of our sin. Let me say that again. There are times, especially times in conflict, when what our relationships need most is to feel the pain of our sin. I'm going to unpack that in a second. But I think that's contrary to what we're often tempted to believe. We don't have a category for, for what we do with pain and anger and, and, and anxiety and all the stuff that's ugly and hard in conflict. Sometimes we need to move past the point of being defensive, of denying we've done anything wrong or denying that someone else has wronged us. And we need to move into that place where we begin to say, this isn't okay. This is painful. This needs to be out in the open. 
During my sabbatical, one of the best books I got to spend some time with is a book called Boundaries. I know many of you have read that by doctors um, Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And one of the things that, that I appreciated is how they, they talked about the place and the importance, even the gift of something like anger. Again, many of us aren't comfortable with our own anger. I know I'm not. It's not something that I, I know what to do with very well. Sometimes as Christians, we believe it's, it's a sin to be angry or that we need to sort of fix it, put it away, pretend it's not there. But they talk about how anger can be a gift to us when it serves like a warning signal, like an alarm to us. It tells us something's not right, a boundary's been crossed, something's been broken, something needs our attention. And so we feel pain, we feel anger, we feel hurt, we feel distressed. And that's actually God's gift to us. Not because the pain in and of itself is good, not because God ever desires to hurt us, but because he wants us to move through that. He wants us to address it so that we can invite his wisdom, his healing, his restoration, and his understanding. And so pain and anger can be like an alarm signal, like our, our fire panel that's broken right now. <laughs> right, tells us something needs to happen. And in this case, Paul expressed his own anger in a, in a loving, but a pretty brutal and, and honest and vulnerable sort of way in that letter he sent. He didn't pull it back. And he says that he knew that sending that letter might cause his friends to be uncomfortable. It might make them angry in return. It might make them sad. They probably wouldn't feel good when they got Paul's letter. But he understands that, that this, too, is a necessary expression and practice of his love and in the value that he places on that relationship to say, what you did wasn't okay, and you need to know that. I also think it's important for us to understand what Paul doesn't do with his anger. So he expresses it, he names it, he puts it out there. But he doesn't use his anger like a weapon. He doesn't seek to hurt the Corinthians just so that they feel pain. He doesn't let his anger become bitterness, right? poison that he's drinking, hoping that they'll be hurt in return. Instead, he prays in verse 9 that the pain that they experience when they understand the severity of what's happened, he prays that it would do them no harm, but in fact would heal them. He prays that the pain that they experience would lead them to repentance. He prays that any sorrow the Corinthians feel might draw them back into the saving, self-giving, other-centered, cross-shaped love. In verses 10 and 11, this is the practice he calls godly sorrow. And it's something we desperately need to know how to practice as resurrection people here. Let's look briefly. We're, we're going to finish here on verse 11. But look at Paul as he unpacks what godly sorrow does. It has its own fruitfulness of a sort. He says, when they felt that pain, 
they could have done a couple things. They could have said, good riddance to Paul. We're done. We don't like that guy. We're glad he's gone. But instead, they heard Paul's pain, and they allowed it to move them to an appropriate level of distress. And it put within them, he says, a desire for repentance. And led them back to God's feet and to ask forgiveness and to ask to be transformed. It led them, he says, to, to kind of clear the air. It led them to seek whatever they could do to heal the wounds they had caused Paul. We understand from chapter 2 that it even motivated them to confront the people that were speaking against Paul, the leaders of that attack. They, they addressed it, they put up consequences, and they said that has to stop in this community. The Corinthians heard the alarm sounding in Paul's experience of sorrow, and it set off their own alarm bells, and they did something about it. Right? They committed themselves to the hard, painful, humbling work of reconciliation. And they began to restore a relationship that sin nearly destroyed. To me, I think this, this passage, this story, the fact that we have a letter of 2 Corinthians is a resurrection miracle. It speaks to what Paul is describing theologically throughout this letter. God takes what is dead and he makes it alive. When we trust, when we lean into the power of who Jesus is. Paul describes here a relationship that only six months prior to this was at its end. It was on life support at best. And through Paul's willingness to practice his own godly sorrow and to invite the Corinthians to enter into that with him, there's now joy, he says. There's, there's hope. Paul is looking forward to returning to Corinth. That's a miracle. That's the gospel being lived out. That's the, the power of the cross of Jesus to heal and unite what Satan would seek to divide and kill and destroy. Paul says, brothers and sisters in Jesus, live under the power of Jesus, the great reconciler, because he has been raised to life. So honesty, godly sorrow, followed up by repentance and reconciliation has to be a practice we know how to learn, we know how to live into, we know how to practice with each other. Paul says if we're resurrection people, we have no choice. We need to courageously own our own sin. We need to ask God to show mercy to those who have sinned against us, to give mercy to those who hurt us, but also pray that Jesus could go to work in those places. Pray that he can raise up the dead places in us to new life. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it, it's not a part of the gospel we like to acknowledge that, that there is sin, that we do live in, in a world of our own limitations, 
our own transgressions, that people hurt us, that we hurt them. And that the way forward in, in the cross is not revenge, it's not self-righteousness, it's not boasting in our strengths, but rather it's leaning into our weakness, our dependence, our only hope in you, who brings the dead to life. Lord, we're grateful that we belong to you. We pray that you would form and shape our relationships accordingly. In your name we pray these things.